0: I'm glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, turn to 2 Samuel 10. 2 Samuel 10. So, uh, we've said before, chapter 5 through 10 is kind of a highlight reel for David. There's not a chronological sequence. It's uh, It's thematic. It's this picture of here's what it looks like for a guy to be living out his calling... Uh, this is what it looks like for him, and here's what it looks like for the country to have God's man for the time in leadership. And uh, we, we saw in chapter 5, David becomes king. He makes Jerusalem his capital. In chapter 6, he brings the ark to Jerusalem, the symbol of God's presence. is now in the center of the country. In chapter 7, God initiates a covenant with David that extends to him and to his sons and grandsons and great-grandsons all the way down through Jesus. Uh, Chapter 8, David wipes out a lot of the enemies of Israel, fulfillment of a personal promise God made to him to give him rest, as well as a promise he made to Israel to give them a place where they could live and dwell in peace and not be disturbed. And then last week, we saw David as a covenant keeper, uh, as someone who showed kindness, and that was the big word for us last week, and we said kindness doesn't equal niceness. Kindness in this context is covenant love or covenant loyalty. It's one of the most important words in the Old Testament. It describes God's posture towards us. And David takes that posture towards this guy named Mephibosheth. Jonathan is his best friend and he establishes a covenant with Jonathan in First Samuel 18. And the covenant says, Jonathan says to David, I'm going to protect you from my jealous, crazy father Saul. And David says to Jonathan, that's what kings would do. And so there's this, they establish a covenant. And David at some point says, I want to extend kindness to someone in Jonathan's family. Jonathan's been dead for 20 something years. I want to extend kindness to someone in Jonathan's family. And Mephibosheth is brought to him. And David says, I want to, because of my relationship with your father. I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to give you your father's estate or your grandfather's estate, Saul's estate. And I'm going to make his property manager Ziba. He's going to run the estate and you're going to get the the proceeds of that. And most importantly, you're going to eat with me for the rest of your life. And there's this picture of Mephibosheth being restored to a place of honor um, again in Israel. And today we're going to see David again look to extend kindness to the son of someone he had a covenant with. But things don't go quite as well as they did in chapter 9. So chapter 10, starting in verse 1. In the course of time, so again, we don't know exactly when, the king of the Ammonites died and his son Hanun succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. We'll pause here and give you a backstory. back story. So we haven't seen Nahash since 1 Samuel 11. You don't remember this story, so... Nahash is king of the Ammonites, and he leads his army to besiege Jabesh gilead which is a city in Israel. And they surrounded the city, and the men of Jabesh say, Hey, can we make a treaty with, with you? And Nahash says, Absolutely. I would love for you to make a treaty with me. Let me gouge out the right eyeball of every male in your city in order to bring disgrace on your whole nation, and then we can make a treaty. And the guys say... Well, can you give us a week? A week. We we want to see if anybody will come and rescue us. And Nahash says, okay. So he's putting these guys in a position where they could still farm. You can farm with one eye so they could still produce money that they could pay to him in taxes. But they couldn't fight. You can't fight with one eye. You've got no depth perception. You can't shoot a bow and arrow. You've got no peripheral vision. So you're not going to be very good with a sword. And so he's he's incapacitating them in terms of being able to, to fight, but he's allowing them to continue to work so they can pay him tribute. And they ask for a week, and he gives them a week, and Saul is a young king at this point, and a, a, kind of on shaky ground. There's some people who are not sure Saul needs to be the king. And Saul hears about this, and he gets very angry, and he rallies a massive army. It's either the largest or the second largest, I can't remember exactly which one, uh, army that we see in all the Old Testament, Israel gathering their men. There's no standing army, it's just the men who are of age, come and fight. Hundreds of thousands of them, and they rush the Ammonites and slaughter them, wipe them out. Nahash escapes. So Nahash and Saul are enemies, and it seems like sometime, maybe while David was a fugitive from Saul during those, during that 15 years or so when he's running from Saul, maybe Nahash Extended some kindness to David, maybe protected him in some ways. But for whatever, whatever the circumstances, we don't know exactly. Maybe Nahash saw in David a fellow enemy, or yeah, a fellow enemy of Saul. I, I don't know. But they seem to have established a treaty. And so David is saying, well, at Nahash's death, I want to show kindness, this, not niceness, this covenant faithfulness, this covenant love to Hanun, Nahash's son. So Nahash was a wicked man, but he had a treaty of peace with David, and David is looking to um, extend that to his son. So when David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commander said to Hanun their lord, Do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to express sympathy? They're saying, No, he's not. Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? Yeah, he's a warrior king. That's what he's doing. So Hanun sees David's envoys shaved off half of each man's beard, so that's vertical, cut off their garments, I can't say that word, and sent them away. When David was told about this, y'all, y'all weren't reading. So disappointing. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, "Stay in Jericho till your peer, till your beards have grown back, and then come back." I'm sure he sent them some more clothes also. When the Ammonites realized that they become obnoxious or a stench odious to David, they hired twenty thousand Aramean foot soldiers from Beth-Rahab and Zobah, as well as as well as the king of Makkah, with a thousand men, and also twelve thousand from Tob. On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance of their city gate while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and and the men of Tob and Micah were by themselves in the open country. Joab saw that there there were battle lines in front of him and behind him. So he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. Joab said, if the Arameans are too strong for me then you come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I'll come to your rescue. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what's good in his sight. So David sends an um, uh, envoy, a group of ambassadors, not kings that normally travel to foreign lands. And so those guys going, that's basically David going. And Hanun's young king, and for whatever reason, his military advisors say, you can't trust David. The cities are walled. These guys get in the gate and they say they're just looking for an opportunity to get in the gate so they can spy out our land and they're gonna overthrow us. David is a warrior, that's what he does. And for whatever reason, either he's naive or he's dumb or he just is tired of being in a covenantal relationship with Israel. Hanun does about the most disrespectful thing he can do to these guys. There's very few things, I wanna get into all the background, but they just no, there's very few things that you could do to an Israelite man that would have been more offensive than what they did. Both with their beards and with their clothes, and so these guys then have to leave the city in that state. They can't go to the store and buy another pair of pants. Like they're leaving, jeers, insults, mocking, all of that, and they're leaving. And you'll see here the map. So Jerusalem is yellow. They go about forty miles over there to um, Rabbah, which is the capital of Ammon, and they're walking back. And Jericho is on. Uh, it's a it's an uninhabited town at this point. And David says it's a very pastoral, loving, kind thing to do. Y'all just stay there, just stay there. We'll send you some clothes, and when your beard grows back, then you can come, then you can come back home. And that way you're not embarrassed uh, when you walk back into the city. So that's how David treats his men. And then he turns towards Hanun, and Hanun I knew he was picking a fight. Like this is not. We said a couple of weeks ago, this is a thousand years before turn the other cheek. This is eye for an eye, and these guys, they spit in David's face. That's what they're doing. They're breaking this relationship with him, and so, so he's going to respond, and Hanun knows he's going to respond, and so he hires 33,000 mercenaries and says, I need you all to come and help me fight against David. We've seen the Aramaeans before in chapter 8. We don't know exactly chronologically how everything fits together, But this seems to be the second battle, not the first. So David's already beaten them once. And so maybe there's this part of them that wants some payback. But they are being paid very well. 75,000 pounds of silver that Hanan gives to these 33,000 men in order to fight for him. David hears about it. So he sends out Joab, his nephew, who's also the commander of his army, with their entire fighting force. And they take the 40-mile trek up there to Rabbah. And they get there. And Joab... It seems to me to be really, he seems to be good at his job, if not really good at his job, as we read through First and Second Samuel. I, I don't know what happened here. I don't know if he miscalculated, I don't know if it was bad luck, I don't know if it was, it couldn't be helped, but not being a military tactician at all, I, I, I do know, if you have somebody, an enemy in front of you, and an, enemy, and an enemy behind you, you're in bad shape. So there's an Israel sandwich with the Ammonites on one side, in the city, and then the Arameans on the other side in the country, and Joab and his guys are in the middle. So they've got enemies in front of them and enemies behind them. And Joab, I, I'm not sure what to make of him. At times he seems very heroic and very honorable, and seems to be um, seems to be a good man, a righteous man. And there are other times he seems to be incredibly selfish and have his own agenda that he's pursuing. I, I don't know, there's no indication that he prays, there's no indication that he was led by the Lord, but he has this idea, let me split the army, and maybe at that point there's nothing else to do. And he says, I'm going to take the best that we have, and I'm going to turn around and fight the Arameans who are behind us in the country, and his brother Abishai, he says, you take everybody else, and you go forward and you fight the Ammonites who are in the city. And then if you've ever been um, a big underdog on a sports team, like he gives the locker room speech, that to me is what this thing is. Hey, we're going to fight for ourselves and we're going to fight for our families and we're going to fight for the country and go America and God help us. I mean, that's to me is, that's what it sounds like to me. From a place of faith or desperation, he's, I think he's going, I, I, I got nothing at this point. We're in a terrible spot. Let's see if this works. Hopefully God will take care of us. And we'll see what God does. Then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the Ammonites realized that the Arameans were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and when they went into the city. So Joab returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. I'll pause there. So no casualty counts there. I don't know if they actually fought or paid. I don't see any reason to risk anything. And so they just run. They're gone. And then the Ammonites are going, well, those are the guys we paid to fight. They're gone. We're going to go as well. So they pull back into their gated city. And so Joab just kind of left out there with his guys. He had enemies in front of him and enemies behind him. And now he's got nobody. So he just goes home. And uh, the battle for Rabbah, that city, continues through chapter 11 and 12. It's a backdrop for actually David's greatest personal failure. Um, and we'll look at that in the next couple of weeks. So put a pin in the Ammonites. We won't see them um, really that get resolved till the end of chapter 12. So after the Arameans, so those are the mercenaries, after they saw they'd been routed by Israel, they regrouped. Hadadazer, who we saw in chapter 8, David beat him in chapter 8. He had Arameans brought from beyond the Euphrates. They went to Halam with Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. When David was told of this, he gathered all Israel. So now David is leading, not Joab. Crossed the Jordan and went to Halam. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him. But they fled before Israel and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals, of, excuse me, were vassals of Hadadezer, saw that they had been routed by Israel. They made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. So this guy Hadadezer had been beaten by David before, and maybe he was embarrassed because this, these mercenaries ran away. I don't know, but for whatever reason, he decides to regroup. Think of each city as basically having its own king, so he gets all these different, the men of all these different cities to gather together under him. They're all kinfolk, they're all Aramaeans and they are going to fight David up here in this place called Halam. You'll see it up there on the screen. It's not, not that one. That one. Not that one. Well, you can see it up there. It's in the top right. It's the next slide. That's okay. Um, so, they, they go up there to fight, and David routs the Aramaeans. And the guys, who, the, the kings of these different city-states say, we don't want to fight you anymore. We're done. You take money from us. We'll be your subjects. We are subject to you. We do not want to fight you anymore. We're 0 for 2, and we're out. And that's how uh, chapter 10 ends. I was thinking about that again. One of the difficulties at times can be what's the connection between the life that we live and the life that we read about in the Old Testament. Um, I see one connection point. You may see another that really is just a long introduction and set up for communion. We've been taking communion and we'll continue uh, every week during Lent as we prepare our hearts for Easter. And so really this is just a long on-ramp to communion for us. Between chapter 9 and chapter 10, the key word is kindness. That's the connection between those two chapters David desiring to show kindness to basically to an outsider he's moving beyond the letter of the covenant to embody the spirit of the covenant the letter of his covenant with Jonathan is don't kill my male family members david hasn't done that he moves beyond that the spirit of the covenant i want to do good i want to show kindness to someone he had a covenant with Nahash. He goes beyond that letter to the Spirit. To say, I want to maintain covenant with your family, with your son, when he moves in to a position of leadership and power. So David is desiring to show kindness. And then we see one person who receives his kindness and one person who rejects his kindness and their consequences to those choices. Mephibosheth receives and accepts the kindness that David wants to show to him and his life changes in a moment. He goes from living basically in self-imposed exile, 60 miles away from his ancestral homeland in a place called Lodabar. He's living with a guy named Makir, M-A-K-I-R, who is taking care of him. And David restores him. He restores him to his homeland. Here's your grandfather's estate. It's going to be yours. He provides for him. Here's Ziba and his 20 sons and his 15 servants, and they're going to take care of this land, and you're going to get the money from it, and you're going to eat with me every day. You're going to eat with me in the palace. I'm establishing relationship with you. I'm the king, and I'm bringing you in. Mephibosheth's life changes in a heartbeat. David extends or attempts to extend kindness to Hanun. He sends this envoy. And again, for whatever reason, Hanun misreads David's intentions, or he just sees an opportunity to pick a fight, and that's what he wants to do. But he rejects David's kindness. And he makes himself obnoxious, odious, a stench in David's nostrils. And David comes after him. And you'll see at the end of chapter 12, he beats him. Hanun loses his city. He has become an enemy of the king, and there are consequences of that decision. And you can see the connection point for us with God. If you step back and we say, we're going to let this be a window into the way God treats us. God desires to show kindness to us, not to be nice to us, to show covenant love and covenant faithfulness to us, to show mercy to us, to give grace to us. And in my theology, we have an opportunity to respond. We say yes or we say no. We accept or we reject. And that yes or no, that acceptance or that rejection has consequences for us. If we say yes to that, the many, which many of you have, then you're restored. You're brought into a relationship with the king. You get to eat with him forever. He gives you a place. He provides for you. He cares for you as a father does a son or a daughter. If you say no and you reject, and this is where it breaks down a little a little bit, you become an enemy of the king. We're actually already we're born enemies of the king, according to Paul in Romans 5. And we may, we continue as enemies of the king. And there are consequences to that rejection. And ultimately where that leads to is life apart from the king forever. And if the king is the source of all good things, and you said, I'm not interested in being reconciled to you, and I'm not interested in relationship with you, I'm not interested in eating at your house all of the days of my life, then you're left with hell. That's the only other option. It's the place where the king is not. It's the place where good things are not because he's the source of all of those things. Consequences, whether we say yes or whether we say no, whether we accept or reject. The kindness and the grace that the king offers to each one of us. If you press a little farther, I think of David, again, going beyond the letter of the law to the spirit he, of the law. He says to Zeba, who's Saul's property manager in chapter 9, he says, is there anybody? Is there anybody left of the house of Jonathan to whom I can show kindness? He's searching for someone. Again, according to the letter of the law, he's good. The letter of the covenant that he and Jonathan have, he's good. He hasn't killed anybody in Saul's family, which is what he said he would do. He's going beyond that. To say, is there anyone whom I can bless? Is there anyone to whom I can show favor? It sounds like the God we just sang about, right? The one who leaves the 99. The one who's pursuing the one who is actively seeking ones to whom he can show favor and grace and kindness and mercy. It's interesting, Mephibosheth, he's introduced in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, and we see him again in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, and the way he's described. So, first opening line, first we hear of him. Jonathan, who was the son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. And at the very end of that verse, his name was Mephibosheth. So when David calls Ziba in, because Ziba would know, running Saul's estate, are there any kids in Jonathan's family? Is there anyone left? Ziba says, yes, there's a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both of his feet. And then the closing verse of chapter 9, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And oh, by the way, just in case you forgot, he was crippled in both feet. He's lame. He's crippled. He's a cripple. I got all messed up at nine, and they just let me hang myself. I don't know if you're allowed to say a cripple. I don't know if that's politically correct. But that's what I'm going to say, and there's no malice. I don't know what else you're supposed to say. So I hope that is not offensive to you. So Mephibosheth is a cripple. He can't walk. So he's got no, no value to David. He can't farm, and he can't fight. He's been living off of the generosity of this guy, Makir for 20-something years. He's married and he has a son, for sure, but he's got, there's nothing he can do because he can't walk. There are no inside jobs in Israel in 1000 B.C. There's no such thing as white-collar work. You fight or you farm or you beg. Those are your options. Mephibosheth is not having to beg because somebody is being generous to him, this guy, Makir who lives in Lodabar. It's interesting to me that the writer of 2 Samuel wants to make sure that we know Mephibosheth is a cripple. When he's introduced, it's not Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son and and he was five years old. Or he had a son and he was cute. Or he had a son and he was really smart. Or he had a son who had brown hair and blue eyes. He had a son and he was crippled. David to Ziba, is there anybody? Yeah, there's a son and here's how you'll know him. He's crippled. By the way, as we're closing the this story, this, this son of Jonathan who's been restored, who now has a place, and he has provision, and he's, got, he's received honor again, just so you remember, he's crippled. It's the most prominent feature of Mephibosheth's life. I was thinking about that in comparison to Hanun, this guy who's a young king, probably on the ascent, maybe he does not know anything about anything, but he's got potential. It reminded me of two stories that you see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, always back to back. This is Mark 10. This is Mark's version of these two stories, these two different groups of people who approached Jesus. Starting in verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked those parents. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to his disciples, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took, the little children, he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, after he blessed these children, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder, or commit adultery, or steal. Don't lie, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Since I was 12 years old, I've done all of that. Jesus looked at him and loved him. So this is not Jesus trying to push this guy away. He's trying to pull him close. One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. You see the parallels, right? Little children. So we think of little children as cute. In Jesus' day, they weren't considered cute. They were takers. You fed them. You clothed them. You took care of them. They did nothing for you. They couldn't contribute at all. They couldn't work in the home, and they couldn't work in the field. All they did was take from your limited resource. That's it. They weren't despised at all, for sure, but they were not idolized. They were not idealized. They were takers. Hopefully, they live long enough to take care of you when you get old, but most of them honestly aren't going to. Children were not valued. Jesus is trying to establish a kingdom. That's what he says. The kingdom of heaven is near. And his disciples, he's approaching Jerusalem, the capital of their nation. And the disciples are getting excited because now something's finally going to start clicking. And these parents are bringing their grubby little takers to him. And they're saying, these people don't help us. They don't get us where we want to go at all. You're wasting our time. And Jesus says, hold on. Everybody's got to become like one of these if they want to enter this kingdom that I'm establishing. You've got to become like a little child. And then this guy comes up to Jesus, and he is all star material. He's young, he's rich, he's influential, he's righteous. He's everything you're looking for if you're establishing a kingdom. I need guys like that on my team. They're the ones that help us get things done, they give us credibility. They make things happen. And he approaches Jesus, I think, with all sincerity. He falls down at his feet. He asks him what I think is a sincere question. How do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the rules. And he says, I've kept them since I was 12. Can you imagine being able to say that? Jesus doesn't challenge him on it, so I assume it's true. This guy's kept the command since he was 12. And by the way, if he's kept the command since he was 12, then most likely he's giving away more money percentage-wise than any of us. Probably at least 20% of his income he's given away. So sometimes we can see him as greedy and hoarding. And if he ha- is indeed following the law, depending on how you do the math, he's given away anyway from 10 to 30% of his income. Split the difference and say he's given away 20 Again, higher percentage than probably anybody in the room. But Jesus, even in spite of that, can look through and say, Listen, there's one thing you're missing. You've got to sell everything and follow me. He never says that to anybody else than Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But to this guy, he can look into his heart and he can see the obstacle or he can see the thing that's holding him back. And the thing that's going to keep you from eternal life, which is what you desire, is all of your wealth. And the guy leaves sad. And I think Jesus is probably upset as well. And he says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Is wealth bad? Not necessarily. But wealth is easy to trust. It's very easy when you have money to trust in money. It's just money pulls you in in that way. Money works at the grocery store, and money works at the clothes store, and money works at the car store, and money works at your school. Money works, and it's easy to trust in it. When you don't have it, you can't trust in it. But when you're rich, and all of us are, and we have it, subtle. But over time, we find ourselves unknowingly trusting in it, and that's what Jesus sees in this guy, and he says, you've got to get rid of it. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about Mephibosheth, a cripple. I was thinking about children. Babies can't even feed themselves. Can't open the refrigerator door. If you don't take care of them as parents, they die. Literally, they die. Mephibosheth as a cripple. If someone is not taking care of him, he's done. He can't farm and he can't fight. He's not living on his family estate. He's not even getting any money from that. He's completely dependent upon the generosity of another man, another family. Children, completely dependent upon their parents' generosity to take care of them. Both Mephibosheth willingly says, I accept your kindness, David, the one who took the place of my father on the throne. I willingly accept your kindness to me. Children say, I take whatever you're giving me, I'm going to take. They don't say thanks when they're two. They just take. Willingly, knowing, not even consciously, but if somebody doesn't take care of me, I'm done. You contrast that with a king like Hanun, nun, and it breaks down a bit there. He's not a great parallel with the rich young ruler, but you have people who have something. You think about a rich young ruler who keeps all the rules. Really, he's a righteous guy. He's a great guy. He is rich. He's influential. He's a leader. He seems sincere in his desire even to inherit eternal life. How difficult it is for him to release the thing that keeps him from trusting fully in God. When I think about me, I have no aspirations to be a cripple. I never get up in the morning and say, it would be great if I was in a wheelchair today. Never. And I never want to go back to being a baby. That's not anything that I'm working towards. One of the things about Mephibosheth, one of the things about babies and toddlers, easier for them in some ways to receive from the Lord because they recognize their need. I think that's what the writer of Samuel wants. Hey, you remember this Mephibosheth. He's got nothing to offer David. He can't fight and he can't farm. The most he can do is have a son who may eventually be a rival to the throne. And yet David extends kindness to him anyway. He brings nothing to the table. These children, they bring nothing to the table for Jesus. And I think that's a word for me and maybe it's a word for you. Do you recognize your neediness before the Lord? You bring nothing to the table. We're not, in a sense, we can say we are rich young rulers. But it's a facade. It's not even legitimate. Jesus in uh, Revelation 3 is addressing this church, the Laodicean church. And it's a church in a rich city. And therefore, they're a very rich church. And they've got a great banking industry. And they've got a great medical industry. And they make a bunch of clothes. And Jesus says about them, here's what you say about yourself. You say, I'm rich. That's what you think when you look in the mirror. And that's probably what everybody else says about you as well. But here's what I see when I look at you. You're actually poor. And you're actually wretched. And you're actually naked. And you're actually blind. So let me give you some advice. Why don't you buy from me gold that's been refined in the fire? Why don't you get from me clothes that are white? Why don't you get from me sad that you can put on your eyes so you can actually those whom I love I rebuke and discipline closing statement those whom I love I rebuke and I discipline how many of us I wonder could be like Canaan God is sending kindness to us but we don't recognize it as kindness because it's painful conviction never feels good most of the time growth doesn't feel good either it's It can be difficult. Think about Junior pacing back and forth up here and how much he would probably have rather stayed in his seat. It can be difficult to acknowledge need. God kindly pricking you. Maybe even bringing you to a place where you realize the the things that I've relied on up to this point, they're not going to They're not enough. And maybe it's like Jenga and he starts pulling some of those blocks out. And it doesn't seem like something a good father would do, but it's actually the kindest thing that he can do because he's trying to show you you're actually a cripple. You're a little kid, and if you can grab onto that, then you'll recognize there's a whole table right here for you. Anything you want, everything that you need, it's right here. But you've got to get to a spot where you can recognize your neediness, and sometimes be difficult to do. As we close this morning, we are going to take communion. Logistically, what that looks like, you'll come forward a a row at a time. You'll break off a piece of bread and dip it in juice. We'll have gluten-free communion here on the table. And you can take that, serve yourself. We'll have ministry teams here in the corners. We'll pray with you about anything at all uh, that you have going on. I would say particularly, or not particularly, one of the things that we do emphasize during uh, communion is, is healing. And so if you're sick in any way, please allow us to pray with you. Uh, we'll make, guys will make a cross in the back of your hand with oil, and they'll very simply pray for God uh, to heal you in Jesus' name. But um, as we're moving towards communion, this is if you wouldn't mind closing your eyes, one of the things I want you thinking about, maybe even the, the primary thing, when you think about yourself, this is not... About beating yourself up and thinking you're a worm. You're not. You've been created in the image of God. But do you recognize that you're a cripple? Do you know the places where you're crippled? Do you know the places where you're needy? Independent? Where you can't take care of yourself? Paul says this God who gave us his only son. How much more will he give us? all that we need. If you can acknowledge your need this morning as you come forward for communion and dip bread in juice, let that to you be a physical reminder and a physical tangible sign of God's willingness to meet you at that place of need. In a, a fluent area. Many of you are well educated. Many of you are, are leaders in your field. Many of you are people that other folks look to for advice and for guidance. Y'all are, y'all are what people aspire to. They want to be like you. And can you from that posture say, you know what, That's, that may be what they stay, see and at times that may be what I see but I, I recognize I'm actually poor and I'm weak and I'm wretched. Again, I'm not beating myself up. I'm just recognizing the reality of my ongoing need for the grace and the kindness and the mercy of God. It wasn't a one-time decision made decades ago. when I recognized my need for a Savior. I need to be saved in that sense again Daily. I need to constantly stay connected just like a child to his or her parent a toddler to his or her parent has to stay connected so do we to ours God I pray that we're quiet before you I encourage you just in your own heart just ask that question God where am I where am I crippled Is my greatest point of need this morning? I don't. I'm a little nervous about saying this. Um, Mephibosheth never gets out of the wheelchair. He's crippled every day of his life, but he's taken care of because of his relationship to the king pray for healing and we pray for deliverance and we believe God is willing and able to do that. But we also know and believe that even if you're in the wheelchair for the rest of your life, if you stay connected to the King, He'll take care of you. Spirit, would you come now? And would you, I pray that you would communicate to every man and woman, every student in this room in a way that each of us would understand personally and individually this reckless love that you have for us, this wild love that you have for us, this zealous love that you have for us, God, that we would recognize. You would give us grace to comprehend how wide and high and long and deep is this incredible love that you have for each one of us, that you that you say my, the table's open the table's open you acknowledge your need everything that's mine is yours God I pray for men and women who need to take hold this morning that they would do so as they come forward and break off bread and dip it in juice to be an act of faith for them of saying God I'm laying hold of the resources of heaven meet this area of need in my life someone had a word potentially about suicide and that's a a tricky thing to talk about if you are suffering from some form of of, of mental um, illness, if you're depressed, if you're pondering suicide at all, please, please allow us to pray with you. Don't try to walk that battle. Uh, Fight that battle on your own. God has resources for you as well. So Holy Spirit, again, would you come now you minister into the hearts of your children. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand.